Prime Matters presents From Shadows into the Light, a Holy Week Retreat by Monsignor James P. Shea, President of the University of Mary. The reflection on the gift of faith in dark times was first delivered during Holy Week in the midst of the 2020 coronavirus pandemic. PrimeMatters.com is a groundbreaking project of educational outreach of the University of Mary, Awakening the Catholic Imaginative Vision. Palm Sunday, Faith Amidst the Darkness of a Pandemic A reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good brothers and sisters, we stand together at the beginning of the holiest week of the year, the solemn week of our salvation in Christ. And we fix before our eyes his cross. The whole week is a pilgrimage to the crucifixion of the Son of God. And what lies beyond it, beyond our every hope. A special word of affection and deep love for our University of Mary community, our beautiful students, our faculty, staff, alumni, and our many friends around the world. A warm word of gratitude to Father Tom Duffner and the good people of the Church of the Epiphany in Coon Rapids, Minnesota, for whom these retreat conferences have been prepared. And also to Father Chad King and the people of Corpus Christi in Phoenix, Arizona, who heard an early version of this retreat back in February. There in Arizona, if you were to visit the University of Mary's campus, Mary College at ASU, you would find there an inscription which knits together the motto of the university, taken from the rule of St. Benedict, Lumen Vitae, the light of life. Mary knits it together with a little known inscription on the tomb of someone in Birmingham, England. It is the tomb of St. John Henry Newman, canonized this past year, and the epitaph reads, Ex umbris et imaginibus, in veritatem, out from the shadows and images into the truth. We've combined these two sayings there in the Valley of the Sun to get ex umbris in lumen, from shadows into the light. This is the theme of our time together, from shadows into the light, gaining the eyes of faith. Who knew just a handful of weeks ago 
that the whole world would be gripped by such shadow. And as sunshine and springtime finally break through and wash over our prairies here in the upper Midwest, there is a darkness upon us. Like everything that happens in our life, we are presented with a choice. We can wither in darkness, surrender to anxiety and despair, turn in upon ourselves in resentment and self-pity. Or we can reach out our hands and open our hearts and lift our voices in faith to the one whose love is invincible, who casts out fear, who holds us and all those we love firmly in his tender grasp. I want to spend this week speaking to you about faith, the gift of faith. Pope Francis, standing alone in St. Peter's Square at nightfall for the extraordinary Urbi at Orbi blessing, quoted the words of Jesus to the apostles who thought their boat was sinking while their master was asleep. Why are you afraid, Jesus asked. Have you no faith? The Holy Father noted that the question wasn't so much about whether God exists or not, but whether we are willing to come to him and trust in him. We say that we have faith. Do we really? The demons believe that God exists and they tremble. The faith we need for an hour such as this is a loving, trusting faith that opens our eyes so that we can begin to see reality as God sees it. This is what it means to move from shadows into the light, to gain the eyes of faith. Tomorrow night, I will speak more deeply about what faith really is, how we look when we act without faith, what it means truly to act with faith, to live with faith. Then in the following nights, we will speak of Christ's surprising rescue mission in the incarnation in the church and how we can best take stock of and respond to our present times as faithful Christians and true disciples of Jesus. But tonight, tonight we fix our eyes at length upon his cross and we begin together a pilgrimage to the cross and to the great promise just beyond it. We will consider the cross of Christ in four movements. First, the cross of Christ is the true measure of the world. Second, the cross of Christ shines most brightly in times of suffering and uncertainty. Third, the cross of Christ means that Jesus is infected with the diseases of the world and conquers them from within. His blood holds the vaccine. Finally, the cross of Christ shows us how a Christian stands strong in difficult times. First, the cross of Christ is the true measure of the world. The current pandemic, among other things, forces upon us a reevaluation of how we look at life, what is important and what is not, what needs to be carefully protected, what is expendable. How often recently we have heard this phrase repeated, we are living in unprecedented times. In one sense, this is no doubt true. The world has never been so interconnected through electronics, through rapid and easy travel, 
through international economic ties. So the specific experience of this pandemic and the response to it are new because of these new circumstances. But from another and deeper point of view, there is nothing at all unprecedented about all this. It is not new for people to face outbreaks of disease and the threat of contagion and possible death. It is not new for whole societies to be thrown into confusion because of external factors they cannot control. Do we really think that our fellow human beings through history have not faced grave uncertainty in the face of natural forces, whether diseases, earthquakes, famines, storms, plagues of wild beasts and insects, things from which there was no obvious escape. The truth is that nothing has been more constant and typical of human life from its first beginnings. We don't want to make the mistake of thinking that just because during the last few decades in our particular part of the world, we haven't faced much of this sort of thing because we have been so comfortable, well-fed and prosperous that therefore this is something strange, unknown, unprecedented. We don't want to forget our deep and true history. We are a race suffering under a curse and the immediate ruler of this world's structures of power is the great enemy of our human nature. When we look at the story of our people, the human race, we know for sure that it is unprecedented for us not to be subject to this kind of unknown and potentially lethal menace in one form or another. There's something more. Whatever gains we have made in recent generations, and they have been spectacular in keeping certain dangers that have plagued humanity at bay for a time, hunger, disease, poverty, extremes of heat and cold, we don't want to forget that these victories have vanquished only small flea bites when seen in comparison with the great enemy that faces us and over which we have not been able to gain even a scrap of power or relief, namely death. And however much we may try to convince ourselves otherwise, it is death that is the real enemy. Death is the shame of our race. Death causes us most fear. Death closes over and brings to an end even the brightest and healthiest of lives and seems to render them meaningless, tearing friends and lovers and families apart from each other. I wrote a letter to our faculty and staff this week in which I quoted Corrie Ten Boom, that brave and noble Christian woman from Holland who spent World War II rescuing Jewish refugees from deportation and destruction, and then who herself ended up in Ravensburg, Ravensbrück concentration camp. I was comforted by two quotes from her. She said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And this one, worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. I was comforted by her words, wise words, words for our time, 
but thinking about her brought to mind for me all the ravages of that horrible pan-world conflict from the time of our grandparents just a few decades ago, less than a lifetime, in which more than 75 million human lives were snuffed out in battle and bombings and genocide, disease and starvation. In his memoir, Night, Elie Wiesel tells us what it was like to be a 15-year-old Jewish boy in the horrors of the Buchenwald concentration camp. And one day they set up a gallows to hang three prisoners there, two men and one little child, a young boy with the face of an angel and sad eyes. They were forced to watch the hanging, the prisoners were. And he recounts this memory, something which devastated his own faith in the God of Israel. Elie Wiesel. Then came the march past the victims. The two men were no longer alive. Their tongues were hanging out, swollen and bluish. But the third rope was still moving. The child, because his body was so very light, was still breathing. And so he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death, writhing before our eyes and we were forced to look at him at close range. He was still alive when I passed him. His tongue was still red, his eyes not yet extinguished. Behind me, I heard someone asking, for God's sake, where is God? And from within I heard a voice answer, where is he? This is where, hanging here from this gallows. Elie Wiesel was right. God was hanging there. But that is not the end of faith. It is its strange beginning. And this haunting truth is not a cheerful Sunday school song. God came among us in Christ to deal with our enemies. He intends to free us from every oppressive evil, physical, mental, emotional, relational, but the enemy that comprises all other enemies is death. If God did not deal with that, anything else would be just so much dancing on the edge of the grave. Christ went for the jugular. He determined to take the real enemy, not disease, not poverty, but the source and center of all these lesser ills, the reign of the prince of darkness and the fruit of his reign, death. From the book of wisdom, through the devil's envy, death entered the world, and those who belong to his party experience it. We all know how Christ conquered this powerful enemy. We are in the midst of meditating on it and remembering it. He went to the cross. After taking flesh and allowing himself to be encumbered by all the weaknesses of fallen humanity, he allowed himself to be taken by his enemies put through a cruel torture, mocked and scorned, and then executed in an excruciatingly brutal fashion. By death, strangely, mysteriously, he conquered death. And that is why the cross of Christ is the measure of the world. There is a beautiful sermon by St. John Henry Newman, the man with the tombstone, preached with this very title 
1841 from the pulpit of the University Church of St. Mary the Virgin at Oxford, the cross of Christ, the measure of the world. Newman notes that human life is a riddle, a maze, a perplexity. It seems full of contradictions and mysteries. How are we supposed to live? Should we be joyful all the time, even when the world is burning around us? Or should we be gloomy and dark, even though there is so much good in the world, so many blessings in our lives? And what is most important, the future or the past or the present? Newman says that the world must sort through all of this with its wits. But for Christians, we have been given the key to interpret our lives. There is something by which we estimate and value and measure everything. And it is this, the crucifixion of the Son of God. The words from his sermon. It is the death of the eternal word of God made flesh, which is our great lesson how to think and how to speak of this world. His cross has put its due value upon everything which we see, upon all fortunes, all advantages, all ranks, all dignities, all pleasures, upon the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It has set a price upon the excitements, the rivalries, the hopes, the fears, the desires, the efforts, the triumphs of mortal man. It has given a meaning to the various shifting course, the trials, the temptations, the sufferings of his earthly state. It has brought together and made consistent all that seemed discordant or aimless. It has taught us how to live, how to use this world, what to expect, what to desire, what to hope. It is the tone into which all the strains of this world's music are ultimately to be resolved. It is the tone into which all the strains of this world's music, even those movements of music in the minor key, are ultimately to be resolved. The death and resurrection of Christ is the most significant event that has ever happened, but it is much more it is the precise moment when the human race was set free from our ancient enemies. But it is much more. It is more because it is the interpretive key to all of life. It is the lens given us through which to understand everything that happens within us and around us. It is the reality that puts its due value upon everything we see. It is the measure of our world and of our lives. Do we want to understand something about what is happening around us. Look at the cross. Do we wonder what God is doing with us right now, personally? Examine our life in the presence of the cross. Do we want to know what is important and what is superfluous? Bring everything into the presence of the cross and allow it to sift our hearts and our lives. There's a reason why we put the cross everywhere in our churches, our homes, our classrooms, even our jewelry. There's a reason why we trace the shape of the cross upon ourselves so constantly when we make the sign of the cross. The shadow of the cross brings light and understanding to our fallen condition and shows us who we are and what we should expect. The cross of Christ is the measure of the world. 
That brings us to our second point. The cross of Christ shines most brightly in times of suffering and uncertainty. From the Gospel of John, in the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The cross and the illumination it brings to our minds and lives shows up up most potently, most brightly in times of darkness and trouble. Its light dims when everything is going well, but it flames forth when things get bad and the worse and more miserable things are, the greater the light of the cross. Why? Why is this so? Consider some of the ways Jesus speaks about himself or is presented to us in the scriptures. Among other things, he is called the Savior. He speaks of himself as the divine physician. He is called the light of the world who shines in the darkness. He is the truth, the one who frees us from the bondage of slavery, the conqueror over our enemies. These are wonderful and encouraging titles, but only for those who really know that they need a Savior, who know that they are sick unto death, who feel the grinding burden of slavery, who are brought to despair by the oppression of their enemies, who are troubled by living in a world of darkness and deception. But what about those who think that they are healthy, who believe themselves to have light and truth enough of their own to negotiate existence, who don't know that they are slaves, who don't think that they have enemies, in short, who don't feel any need for a savior? For those people, they won't find the message of Christ so appealing or even necessary. The problem with this attitude of not needing a savior this way of looking at the world and ourselves is that it is deeply delusional. It's a flight from reality and it can never be maintained for very long because sooner or later, and usually sooner, reality has a way of breaking in upon our delusions and scattering them to the wind. When things are going well in a worldly way, when at least for a time there are health and high spirits, enough money to go around, relative peace with our neighbors and a comfortable existence for most, in those moments it's perilously easy for us to slip into this kind of massive unreality about who we are and what our state is. We begin, we begin to live without faith. When an individual or a society experiences good times, the message of the gospel can seem dim or distant, and our desperate need and our dire situation can be hidden from us. This leaves us, although we don't know it, in the most vulnerable possible condition. We are like patients riddled by a disease whose ravages are now hidden but are about to break out everywhere. Like slaves who think they are free and are partying in the master's house, not knowing that he's about to open the door. Like soldiers who have left their posts and are laughing around the fire while their enemies are surrounding them with weapons raised for slaughter. There is no worse state for a human being than to think that all is well and that there is no need to be saved. We are humble creatures, you and me. We're humble creatures in perpetual need of salvation every moment of our lives. If God should allow us for a time as individuals or as a society to endure difficulty or suffering, it's not because he hates us, 
If he cared nothing for us, he would leave us alone in darkness, undisturbed. Even those of us who profess to have faith, especially us, need reality therapy from time to time to remind us that our faith is not an accompaniment to life, frosting on the cake, something to give us comfort along with steak and all the shrimp you can eat. No, our faith, our faith is the center of everything, and at the center of our faith is the crucifixion of the Son of God. When darkness covers the earth, you know, that's when, that's when Christianity really shows up. Christianity was made for a fallen, suffering race. And Christians are meant to suffer with such nobility, with such grace and love, that they light up the whole world. The gospel message and the women and men who believe in it may be hidden in times of prosperity. They blend in. But when adversity comes, then they shine. Many of us know this from our own experiences of suffering. A gospel that was only consoling in times of plenty would be mockery to a suffering humanity. But Christ conquered through his suffering. He won his way to all good things through the dark door of death. And he told us that this was to be the pattern in every life. From the gospel of Matthew. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This brings meaning to all suffering and death, and it is the lens through which to understand all the dynamics of human events. Since suffering and death are the universal experience of a fallen race, any way forward that does not bring meaning to suffering and death is nothing but a vapid dream dust and ashes, a plan that will bring despair and darkness in its wake. But the gospel is not a plan like that. And that brings us to our third point. The cross of Christ means that Jesus is infected with the diseases of the world and conquers them from within. His blood holds the vaccine. From St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. And from his second letter to the Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know the story of St. Damien of Molokai. Father Damien de Wooster was a priest from Belgium who left civilization to live with the lepers in Hawaii for almost 20 years. Let's be sure we understand the full significance of his life. Damien was more than a courageous person who put the welfare of others before his own health and safety. That itself is a heroic act and would rightly command the world's respect. But more profoundly, Damien, like every saint, was tracing out the life and mission of Christ himself. The lepers were trapped in a leper colony on Molokai, forbidden to leave and doomed to die there of their disease. They were ravaged by the sickness and also by the spiritual darkness that accompanied such a hopeless state. Damien himself was not a leper. He came willingly from a far country and went to live among the lepers. 
He knew that he would eventually catch their disease and die from it. Yet knowing the truth of Christ, he also knew that his physical death was nothing to fear, that it could not ultimately harm him. He had a hope beyond the grave, and he brought that hope to the suffering lepers he went to serve. He didn't keep them from dying. They still died. But he allowed them to live with dignity and to die in hope. And he got sick and he died with them, even as he was healing their spiritual diseases and leading them to absolute health and happiness. We talk about being far from the sacraments in these days and of the inconveniences of social distancing, even in going to confession. You know, when the supply ship came to Molokai to cast provisions in the direction of the leper colony, Father Damien would row a small boat out as close as they would allow him to come. And he would ask if there was a priest on board. If there was, then he would shout his confession and anyone could overhear overhear his sins just so that he could get the absolution so that he longed the absolution he so longed for in his own spiritual sickness. All of humanity is a kind of leper colony and Christ, Christ came among us. Fallen from grace, humanity was dying of its moral diseases, rotting and corrupted by sin and reaping the despair and violence that come with it. God in Christ came willingly into our colony of darkness as a physician and a healer. He knew that the only way to heal our mortal disease was to catch it himself and to be destroyed by it, to become a leper himself, and then by divine strength to break the power of death by rising, never to die again. He caught our diseases and generated the immunity, the elixir of salvation, the vaccine of all our longings, through his blood. He does, not, he does not keep us from dying as the world understands death, but he teaches us how to live with dignity and to die with hope. His blood holds the vaccine. When he was born, when the wood around his body was a manger instead of a cross, he was given the name Emmanuel. God with us. He sure is. On the cross, hanging from the gallows like Elie Wiesel's bright little boy with sad eyes, we see a God who suffers so that all the real life people who do suffer will know that they have a God who understands, who is with them. Those who are lonely and abandoned have a Lord who was denied and betrayed by his closest friends. Those whose bodies are broken and failing have a savior whose back was scourged, whose head was pierced with thorns, whose hands and feet were nailed to a cross. Those in despair and depression have a redeemer who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those who are victims of abuse have a Christ who was humiliated, beaten, ridiculed, 
violated, stripped to shame, and left to die in plain sight of everyone. Those without food or home or clothing have a king whose only earthly possession was a tunic, torn from his bleeding body and gambled away, and who had to be buried in a borrowed tomb. Those who battle drugs and alcohol have a God who cried out from a parched mouth with cracking lips, I thirst. Those bitterly opposed and oppressed and ashamed and made to feel helpless by long habits of lust have a Messiah whose flesh burned in the scourging, who couldn't keep from falling down, not until he was nailed and naked. And those whose families are falling apart, or who turn and toss at night, worrying about people they love, have a savior who looked down from the cross only to see his own dear mother convulsed with grief. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. Upon him was the punishment that brings us peace. By his wounds we were healed. That brings us to our final point. The cross of Christ shows us how a Christian stands strong in difficult times. From the letter to the Hebrews. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise took part in the same nature, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Brothers and sisters, we do not live in unprecedented times, not really. From the standpoint of heaven, which is to say the true view of all things, all human times since the fall of our first parents have been difficult times. All times are times of spiritual warfare, of darkness, of sin, of need for repentance, times in which the eternal destiny of human souls is hanging in the balance. What we usually mean by difficult times are those times when the realities of our fallen state are particularly evident and able to be seen or are touching us personally in ways that cause us more than usual suffering. Times like now. In such times, how should Christians respond? What are the attitudes and habits of mind we want to cultivate? Here are a few. First, first we practice the habit of faith. Faith gives us the ability to see things as they really are. When we practice faith, we are insisting, we are insisting that we maintain that true vision, that clarity of purpose, and that we act on the truths that it shows us, no matter how the wind is blowing and the children of the world are flapping in that wind. It means that we act by principles that we are sure about and were sure about before the storm began, and that no, no matter how our strategy might have to change, we hold fast to those principles with every ounce of our might. This is the foundation of everything else. Faith grounds us in reality and provides the ground upon which we stand. Here are some of the truths that faith shows us. 
First, God, God is not worried or shaken. Things are not out of control. The important work of sifting hearts, which is the point of this life, continues under his watchful care. As he cares for us, so we must identify those under our care and pour our whole hearts into helping them, guiding them, reassuring them with the confidence of faith. Also, the world is not supposed to be going along without a hitch. Nothing should surprise us less than a world in which there is suffering, imperfection, challenge, sin. Also, the spiritual state of each person is vastly more significant than their physical state, although these two states are not entirely unconnected. We keep both of these in view and in proper proportion as we make our way. Finally, there is nothing that can harm us in the difficulties and ravages of this life. Nothing. There may be much to endure, but nothing ultimate is at stake because even dark things are turned to God's use for those who follow him. And the Lord knows us by name. He has counted every hair on our heads. He even watches those hairs tenderly as one by one they turn to gray. And God is writing the script for each of us. He cares about our lives and the lives of those we love more than we do. He is on our team and he is closer to us than we are to ourselves. The Lord knows us by name. So first, we practice the habit of faith. Second, we practice charity. Whatever we do, whatever decisions we make, we do so from the motive of love. It may be love of God. It may be love of neighbor. I told our students when they were nearly all still on campus that the radical restriction on their movements and the precautions of social distancing were not, first of all, to keep them safe. I'm so tired of this talk of safety first. I say no, safety third, or even fourth. <laughs> first and second are love. Love is the reason we are changing our behavior. There are vulnerable people around us who are at grave risk. This is a chance for us to make choices, not simply to protect ourselves, but to care for others who are depending upon us to protect them by our choices. We say that we stand for life. We say that we are men and women of love. We fight for those who need us even if we cannot see them. This, this circumstance is a concrete chance for us to come together and do just that. In this uncertain hour, we can act and do good. In this circumstance and in all darkness, we believers can shine with the flame of charity. Third, third, we cultivate courage. Not some kind of German, Russian, or Norwegian virtue in the face of hard things, but courage is a response of faith. Because we know that nothing can harm us, we rest in that truth and maintain charity in steady courage, come what may. In particular, we never allow fear to dominate our minds or our counsels. Children of this world are very fearful of losing the things of this world. That's no surprise. They don't know that they have a Father in Heaven who is ordering all things in hidden ways for their good. 
But we know better. We have been delivered from the lifelong bondage of the fear of death. Fear and anxiety are more contagious than a virus and can be more easily caught. But they have no hold on men and women who belong to Christ, who know the power of the cross. When things get really rough, if Christians act in faith, charity and courage, and show the world that they have no fear of death, the brightness of the gospel will inevitably shine through them. It will become suddenly evident to those around them that Christians have a hope that anchors them beyond the uncertainties of a passing world and a calm confidence that is almost the opposite of rosy optimism. It is a confidence founded not on everything going well, but on the knowledge that the worst that can happen does not touch the treasure we have been given in Christ. St. Athanasius of Alexandria wrote a treatise that has become a classic called On the Incarnation. He wrote it just a few decades after the Great Persecution, a time when the mighty Roman Empire was trying to stamp out Christianity entirely and thousands of Christians were put to death. Those times were a recent memory for all his hearers. And now Christianity had been made legal and it was able to be taught in public. Listen to one of his arguments for the resurrection of Christ. A very strong proof of this destruction of death and its conquest by the cross is supplied by a present fact, namely this. All the disciples of Christ despise death. They take the offensive against it, and instead of fearing it, by the sign of the cross and by faith in Christ, trample on it as on something dead. Before the divine sojourn of the Savior, even the holiest of men were afraid of death and mourned the dead as those who perish. But now that the Savior has raised his body, death is no longer terrible, but all those who believe in Christ tread it underfoot as nothing and prefer to die rather than to deny their faith in Christ, knowing full well that when they die, they do not perish but live indeed and become incorruptible through the resurrection. Is this a slender proof of the impotence of death, do you think? Or is it a slight indication of the Savior's victory over it when boys and young girls who are in Christ look beyond this present life and train themselves to die? Everyone is by nature afraid of death and of bodily disillusion. The marvel of marvels is that he who is enfolded in the faith of the cross despises this natural fear and for the sake of the cross is no longer cowardly in the face of it. So we return again to the cross. Brothers and sisters, the cross is our hope and joy. By it, we attain everything we desire. And through it, we understand the world around us and the battle within us. The gospel was made for times like these. And we Christians should shine in times like these. As we pray for and muster our faith, our charity, and our courage, we can be sure that our Lord is at work in us and in those around us in his hidden and always effective ways, and that the kingdom of God is making its steady way forward in this pandemic, bringing all things under its sway.
the sway of the kingdom of God. We close with this from the letter to the Hebrews. Let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. <laughs>